This episode is brought to you by Vin Italy International Academy, the toughest Italian wine program. 1,000 candidates have produced 262 Italian wine ambassadors to date. Next courses in Hong Kong, Russia, New York, and Verona. Think you make the cut? Apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Voices. This is Cynthia Chaplin, and today I have the great pleasure of welcoming MJ Towler. He's also known as the Black Wine Guy. MJ is based on the Jersey Shore, and he has gone from being a self-described, totally obsessed wine newbie to the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. So he's now hosting a successful and inspiring podcast that makes me very jealous called The Black Wine Guy Experience. So thanks for coming on today, MJ. Nice to hear you. Well, thank you, Cynthia. What an what an honor to be on the Italian Wine Podcast. Oh, great, great. I'm glad you look at it that way. I, I look at it as an honor being on it myself, frankly. <laughs> I want to talk to you about you how you got into the wine world because it definitely was not through any kind of a traditional path. You know, in fact, you've got a law degree from Rutgers and you were a lifestyle and fitness coach for 15 years. So Fill me in. How on earth did you get into wine? Like where, when, you know, what made the light bulb come on with that? Well, you know, actually, I think I got in the way most people do. You kind of fall into it, to be honest with you. So I I did graduate from law school. And when I was in law school, I had a friend from uh, undergraduate who lived in New York City. And so I would go hang out in New York City a lot on the weekends. And he introduced me to uh, a man named John Capon. And uh, John Capon is the chairman of Acker Wines. His family owned, at the time, it was called Acker Merrill and Condon. And uh, me and John just kind of hit it off. And we used to hang out all the time. John at that time was a uh, hip hop producer. He wasn't even into wine himself. So we would just hang out, listen to music, drink, do what young men did in the 90s in New York City. Young women were doing that too, believe me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I know, you know, uh, which which was 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 getting high and drinking, right? Like and now it's legal here in the states, but like we we're hanging out, we were partying, we we're having a great time, and he was a really cool guy. I got along with him, so you know, I I graduated law school, and I it's one of those things where when I went to law school, I knew I might not be a lawyer. However, I graduated from college in 1992 after being on a six year program, and everybody I knew was like going to graduate school, and so. Law school is kind of like what you do when you don't know what you want to do, uh, because it's it's only three years, and um, law touches everything in this world at some point in some way. You know, as we saw, like the wine tariffs in the states, like law touches everything. So I figured it, it'd be a, it'd be a, it'd be a pretty flexible graduate degree. I didn't know what I wanted to do, so that's how I ended up in law school. But connected with John, and then I got out, and I was and once I was in there, I was like, oh, I don't want to be a lawyer. There's no way I can't do this for like any amount of time in my life. And so uh, I had uh, graduated, actually went to work as a field marketing rep for Reebok after I got out of law school because a, a passion of mine back then, I had, I'd run track in high school and for college for a few years and I love sneakers. So like, I like, I think my issue is like, I get, uh, I get, I go on tangents with things. Like I used to have like 
a ton. Of, I used to collect sneakers. I don't even know if I collect them. I used to get them for free. But yeah, I used to have a ton of sneakers. Oh, even better, getting them for free. That helps the collection. <laughs> you know, um, wearing a different pair every day. But uh, there was a point where even that I, I was I was living in Philadelphia, and I really wanted to be just in New York City. And so John said, you know, hey, I'm starting to take a, a bigger role at the shop and um why don't you come work with me and you'll drink the finest wines in the world on a nightly basis and offered that you couldn't refuse definitely yeah and i didn't know anything about wine but i knew i knew it was new york i i, I had an idea that if i was drinking the best wines in the world on a nightly basis in new york city that was going to be pretty fun like that's going to be pretty pretty outrageous i was like this isn't going to suck <laughs> and so um you know, I went to work there, uh, and it was it was uh, baptism by fire. You know, I had worked retail before for years, and and specialty retail. It had been running shoes, but there's something about when you work in specialty retail, you know, not big box, where you have to have a certain level of knowledge, and people see you as their consultant. That's a really interesting take on, on retail. I, I haven't looked at it that way, but you're so right. Especially, you know, a specialty product really does need all of that expertise. Yeah. I mean, um, and I think a lot of people, thank you for saying it. I think a lot of people overlook that. I mean, I absolutely, you know, I love retail just because you are dealing with the, the end consumer. You get so much insight about, about the psychology of the consumer, about, about, uh, you know, uh, buying preferences trends you know people when it was when it was sneakers it was like what was the hottest sneaker everybody wanted it and particularly running shoes everybody wanted the nike air max and it nike air max wasn't for everybody if you were going to run in it you know it just you have you all have different needs just like we all have a different palette so you know if people would come and ask for something and you want to gently guide them towards something that's more appropriate for their needs so coming from that background and then also having coming out of law school, um, law school, why I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. It's not like TV. It's not like L.A. law. You know, I was like, hey, I, I you know, I'm a decent looking black guy. Uh, Blair Underwood, I could do that. I can go objection. You're overruled, all this stuff. In a sharp suit. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Wear a sharp suit. Exactly. Drive a nice car. Have women falling all over me. Hey, okay. I'm in. And then I was like, nah, nah, it's not like that, man. Yeah, sitting around with boring tax books, no good. Exactly, which which was one of my highest grades in law school. I have, a, I have an interesting mind. Like I enjoy tax law. So you're a nerd, basically. No, no, no. I'm a geek. There we go. <laughs> okay, we'll take that one. Yeah, because and because I had to make this thing because like wine, wine geeks. Like a geek, a geek. You could be a geek and still be cool. A nerd, you know. In my mind, you know, Revenge of the Nerds, nerds are nerds, and I, I love nerds. I have nerds for friends, but, like, what can I geek out on, right? So when I got into wine, I started geeking out on wine. Like, you can geek out about comics, and people geek out about whatever, you know? Uh, people geek out on watches, you know? I mean, like, you anything you collect, you're going to end up geeking out on, because... That's true. That's a good point. Right? Because you're, you're, you're so into it. You're looking for what's unique and what's off the beaten path. And then also there is a little bit of flexing in the geekness and it's not, I came in the business in the, in the late, so I got started at Acker in 97. Yeah. 97. So that was like, that was like full on height of, you know, the Parker era and people bringing baller bottles and, and what score. And, you know, there was all kinds of tasting groups. Like you, you, 
you you had to bring like a Parker 96 or, you know, a Parker 95 and up, you know, and what I got out of that, because I didn't have a lot of money was research, right? So I would show up at a tasting and, you know, and bring a, like a bottle of 1995, uh, Bull Castell, Shadow Enough to Pop Blanc, which got a 96 from Parker and you could get for 45 bucks. And 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 everybody's bringing like their Harlan and their Screaming Eagles and their Synquanons. And then you brought, walk in with this white wine, like a fraction of the cost. And it ends up being like the wine of the night. Like that's that's that to me, that's that was the fun part of that. Right. Like I, I out geeked those guys. Right. Those are the best moments. Right. So so it's like it's finding that bottle that that's off the radar that people aren't thinking about. Right. Like it's like so I, I kind of got that in law school because in law school you learn how you have to do what's called distinguished cases and you had to do these things called shepherdized cases and you actually had to look up in books back then too these things and so you learn how to make distinctions which also is so important in wine like the splitting of hairs of like no that's that's not um licorice that's actually anise you know it's actually it's richer than licorice it's anise you know these tiny distinctions that we can do inside of our business when we're when we're geeking out when they're in the deep dive mode with with the rest of the geeks exactly calling out like uh you know verbena instead of just lemon oil right like stuff like that right <laughs> i need to come to your wine parties definitely <laughs> they're fun um a good time is had by all so that was um thrown into the fire work on the, the floor of the store for eight to 10 hours a day, and then go upstairs and pour for the wine tasting. See, this was, a, I just, so much in life is luck. I will tell people is luck. You, you kind of make your own luck, but there is luck involved, right? You know, how I met John Capon was completely, it shouldn't have happened, to be honest with you, but things happened in my life and I ended up meeting him. And and his family owns a store. And at the time, they still do. They had a, a separate component called the Wine Workshop. So above the store, they own the building. Second floor at night, they would um, do these wine tastings. And they would have all kinds of wine tastings. They would have, you know, Tour of Italy. Or they might have a Vertical Tianello or the Super Tuscans. Or they might have California Colt Cabs. Or they might have an evening of DRC. Or, you know, they might have uh, Chateau Latour back to 1959. St- crazy stuff. You know, Petrus back to like whatever. Taylor Flagate back to 1928. Like, like like hardcore, serious tastings. And I got to pour for those tastings. And because I got to pour for those tastings, I got to taste those wines. Yeah, you're right. This was definitely a baptism by fire in the best possible way. And so, you know, it was one of these things where that was 97. So... You know, we were coming around. I only worked there for a year. It's a tough place to work. Family business are always tough to work at. Now it's become actually a real, you know, they have a board of directors. But, you know, when you work in a family business, it's fun. You're a referee sometimes for family stuff. But having worked there, people knew, like, I, I could get, people knew I knew about wine. If you worked there, you worked, you worked at Acker. Oh, this guy must know wine, you know, and they people would see me on the floor. And, and I was very quickly, you know, at the end of 90 days, I remember Michael Capon who was the the president at the time, John's father said, you, you know more about wine than 98% of the people in the world now, you know? That's, you've got props in the industry when you get that from someone, you know, who's so senior. Yeah, and also, but but he knew because like, you know, I, when the Wine Spectator came out with its top wines of the millennium back in 99, I had like seven or eight out of 10 of the wines. It was ridiculous to, you know, and we're talking like, you know, crazy stuff, you know, all the 82s, all the 86s, 
DRC. That's amazing. What a what a great experience. Like some incredible entry into the wine world. You didn't fall into it. You jumped in with both feet. It was great. And I was like, oh my God. And then why well, I said I kind of like everybody else, you know, the law degree is whatever, but so many people that I meet in wine, particularly being here on in the East Coast of New York, like people go to Columbia, people go to Ivy League schools and end up in wine. You know, people go to like UVA and end up as a Psalm, you know, because it is so intellectually stimulating. Yep, absolutely. Well, I went to one of those schools and I definitely did not stay with what I was doing for my degree. So yeah, I absolutely get it. And it, it is endlessly fascinating. As you said, you know, the deep dive stuff, the minutia does become really addictive. So having having worked at somewhere like Acker, that really gives you, you know, a great jumping off spot. So so where did you go next? I mean, what could have what could have been better than that? What came next after that? I, w- I was probably feeling myself too much. So I bounced around from a few jobs and then like some seasonal work, you know, if someone need help for, uh, you know, the, the holiday season. But then I landed as assistant wine director at a place called the Sparrow Wine Company over in Hoboken, which is on the other side of the Hudson. And again, so I had been in the business. So that was early 99. So I'd been in the business less than two years and I was assistant wine director. And at the time they were opening uh, their second location, which was a huge, huge uh, flagship store on the other side of town. If people know Hoboken, because it was really getting built up back then. It was still, when it hadn't become what it, you know, Hoboken and Jersey City have become basically like Manhattan, extensions of Manhattan. And this was a huge store. I mean, it, it's like the size of like maybe like a total wine would be like it's like a, it's like a big, but it was but it was fine wines, right? It had that big box size. And so the the owner was working on another project. He was also opening a restaurant. And so he was like, "This has been my vision for five years. I'm turning it over to you. You buy all the wine." So I bought all the wines for like this, like I don't know, maybe it was a five huge store, huge store, you know. So um, I did that, and then I say um, he made the mistake of taking me out to California um, <laughs> because I had, had I had a friend who I had worked with in New York City, actually at Acker, and then he was a graduate of UCSB and he decided to go back to Santa Barbara. I was, I was doing like direct imports of stuff from Santa Barbara, like stuff that wasn't with a distributor. I would just have him send me like two or three cases of some stuff and then I would sell it, you know. Oh my gosh. Bootleg-ish. <laughs> Not to think about it. Well, I mean, we got a three-tiered system. I was like, I was like, yo, I got this thing. It's not available on the East Coast. You know, you know, you got to pick up a few bottles, and you know, so I was having fun doing that. And then I, that's when I really got to the realization that with I would think with every wine region, there's so much good stuff that doesn't leave. There's either not enough of it, or um, a lot of times there's not enough of it, or just like you know, like you live in Italy now, right? Like, oh my God, it's that's. How much wine is made in Italy? Oh, absolutely. That doesn't reach the United States is ludicrous. And that and so so so, so what I'm saying is we don't know as consumers and as, you know, consumers of this product. There's so much so um my buddy invited uh, he said, you got to come to this wine festival. I went out to this wine festival with my boss and he knew he's like, oh man, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. And so then, yeah, literally like three months later, I moved out to Santa Barbara, California. This is 1999. And what I find interesting is here in the States, like, it, like Santa Barbara is still kind of like a burgeon, like 
burgeoning wine region. When people are like, oh my God, wine's from Santa Barbara. I was like, man, I was there in 99, man, before, before it had all these AVAs. And people were making wines in these areas. But, you know, wine requires time uh, in its evolution, not just in the bottle, just uh, as an industry. Absolutely. And also sort of in, in sort of people's consciousness. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, back then it was, it was all big Napa cabs, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and you had your, you know, that was like the predominant thing in the market. People weren't really thinking about a lot of their own stuff. And then, you know, but so, so what was better is I ended up working as a SOM and a wine store manager at a place called the Montecito Wine Bistro. And, uh, you know, that was back in, you know, in, in 1999, 2000, you know, there weren't a lot of master Somalis in the world. Most of the Somalis in New York at that time, before I left, were like old French dudes. Most people didn't have, you know, these uh, degrees we have now, WSET, et cetera, and so on. Like, it just wasn't, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was, it wasn't necessary. You just had to know wine and be good with people. And I still think that... Yeah, it was much more a thing in Europe than it was in the States in those days. Yeah. And I think even with that, I think it's more, I, and I, I'm I'm willing to be wrong, but I think it was more the British. Like in France, people, Psalms weren't going to study and they were just, they knew the wines of the regions, you know, they knew the wine list and they were personable. Yeah. Lucky them. They grew up in the, in the grapevines. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, and that was, you know, uh, also just a wonderful experience. Now, I will say this is another thing too about luck and fortune. Also... I was dealing with more of a high-end clientele, you know, where I was working on the Upper West Side in New York City and then in Montecito, California, which is an unincorporated area of Santa Barbara County, which, which you know, where like Oprah lives in Montecito. That's where her, her house is. So, so, you know, I was, I just had the opportunity. And then when you're dealing with clients like that, once you serve them well, you're a hospitality professional, people love to share with you. So guests would bring in crazy bottles. You know, people would show up on a Tuesday night and bring whatever, DRC, Super Tuscans, all kinds of California cult stuff. And like, it'd be like the most ridiculous wine dinner impromptu on a Tuesday night. It sounds fantastic. So it was, it was the land of sunshine and just so nice. And great wine. So you took all this experience with all these amazing wines and you parlayed it into becoming the first African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer. How did that happen? Because that also sounds really incredible and like a very unique experience. Well, that goes back to Acker. So Acker, John wanted to get into auctions in the late 90s. So I think Acker had had like one or two auctions before John with his dad. And they, you know, it was really tough. But John saw where the wine market was going. So while I was at Acker, before I left, um, I uh, worked in the auction department for a few months, uh, learning how to appraise wines, et cetera, and so on. And they actually sent me to auctioneer school, which there was a school actually called the Missouri Auction School. I did not know there was a school for auctioneers. That is very cool. In St. Joseph's, Missouri, which is the home of the Stetson Cowboy Hat Factory, and the Missouri Auction School is known as, wait for it, the Harvard of Auctioneering School. Okay. Now, what's so funny was I was like, the only, I was, everybody was local-ish or, or they were from, and they were coming to learn how to auction off steers or how to do estate sales. And I was like, this, I was the guy from New York. I was thinking one of, of one of two black guys. 
older black gentleman who was there. He, I think he was going to have an estate sale business. He was some from where, like in that Missouri area. And uh, they were like, what do you, what do you, what do you do? And I was like, I'm like, I'm going to be a wine auctioneer. They're like, what? They auction wine. And then I was telling them like, oh my God, it's, it's incredible. Like these wine auctions, they do millions of dollars like in a day and they were blown away. But to graduate, I had to be an auctioneer. So I was like, how much we give for it? We do, give me five, give me five, I got 10, 10, 10 and back, 20, 20, 20, 20. Like I do the, the fast auction thing because that was what we were doing there. And, you know, and um, whereas wine auctions are much more civilized. The lady in the, the lady in the back, paddle number to the lady in the back, to the gentleman over there, uh, 5,000. So I have 6,000 for this beautiful case of declassified border, you know. Yeah. That sounds more more familiar. I went to auction school with Acker. They were having a big auction, and um, no, John just asked me to come back and um, and uh, auction off some lots. So that's how that happened. And you know, so again, I I tell people a lot with life. I mean, it's just what it is. It, you, like it's who you know. Do you you know who are you meeting? So you should always be networking and putting your best foot forward and trying to bring value to people. So even after I had left, I was able to go back and 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 get on that podium and. Um, and, uh, you know, become the first uh, black African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer. That is very cool. I, I love that story. I, I have two friends who are auctioneers, one in the States and one in England. And I think it's an interesting job. Um, but also just hearing that story of learning to, to be an auctioneer where people were learning to auction cattle. That's fantastic. Um, well, I, I've heard of a lot of people refer to you as a music loving wine influencer. In, in and amongst all of this, I mean, we are we are hitting the highlights here, like top end sneakers and fine wines and cattle auctions. But this music loving wine influencer thing, I I really am interested in this. You know, what what does that term mean to you? Music loving wine influencer. Do you see yourself as an influencer? How do you combine the the music love and the wine love, like your work every day? So interesting enough, when I worked at Acker. Back in the day when I was a young, foolish man, I had picked up a, uh, the habit of smoking cigarettes in law school because of stress. But you know how I many people in this business smoke cigarettes? I don't anymore, but it's kind of funny, right? <laughs> when you're supposed to be able to taste and smell everything, I don't understand how they do it. Why is there anything I have notes of tobacco? <laughs> but we actually, you know, we were on West 72nd Street. So, you know, between Broadway and Columbus, this is in New York City. So right next door to us was like a jazz club. So sometimes I'd be out having a cigarette if I was working late at night and uh, standing next to the, the, the door and people were like, oh, uh, you playing tonight? So people, for some reason, I don't know what my look or my vibe, people always thought I was a musician, but I just love music because my father, my father collected. My father was, was, I would say he was an audiophile. Like he was into the equipment. Right. Like he he like he had all the high end equipment. He didn't have as much music as I have, but but I, I came to appreciate and he had a very eclectic. So, you know, he would have like, you know, country music like Charlie Pride and Willie Nelson. Then you'd have Billy Holiday and you have Frank Sinatra. You know what I mean? So like I got and also he would have been great friends with my dad. Same music. And then being a child of like growing up in the 70s in the car with AM radio. Like so like I know like all that like AM radio stuff, like the Carpenters and like all that all that all that stuff that is now being sampled by hip hop. Um <laughs> you know, I grew up on that kind of music. I had uh, a huge CD collection. So I'm I'm a bit of an early adopter. So I got my first CD player like 85 or 86 before it was really big and they back in the day there used to be this thing called the um Columbia House 
cassette club, you know, a coming house music club. And their hook was you get eight CDs for one penny. And then, you know, every month they'd send you the CD of the month. Right. I signed up for that, like, you know, under like, you know, MJ Taller. And then, and then, which is, which is, you know, my nickname, you know, it's based on my initials. And then I would use my first name and then I'd use my middle name, you know, and then I'd like, just make up things and get them sent to like my girlfriend's house and her nephew's name. So like I got all these CDs, right? I had at one point like 400 CD collection and it was very eclectic. So how does the music, how does that come out to play? So my wife bought me a record player, like, I don't know, 2014, 2015 for Christmas. And um, I had lost most of my CDs between moves, various moves back from the East Coast to the West Coast. And um, so like it just set off this thing where I just started collecting vinyl. Like I wanted to recreate like what I had on compact disc on vinyl so i just like old school nice i like it yeah yeah and so like i said like geek out you get obsessive so next thing i knew i had like you know six or seven hundred records and and your wife left you because you were taking up her whole house no 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 you should see her shoe collection (laughs) oh okay touche that's fair dues then and so when i launched the black wine guy instagram which was kind of a goof on on influencers to be honest with you uh, <laughs> because i have a friend who owns a restaurant and and i you know at that point my day job i was working with teens high school kids helping them get into college etc and so on so i was doing like my own personal instagram was just like motivational quotes and stuff and me saying you could do it and stuff like that and my friend and of course i knew this because i also had I've done so many things at a social media marketing company, but I wasn't thinking about tribes and niches. So he's like, oh my God, you see this wine community that's on Instagram. So I go on and I see people with incredibly, you know, just creative names, you know, creative names for what they were as a Psalm and this Psalm and that Psalm or this enophile and that enophile or, you know, wino with an E-A-U-X. And so I was like, what? I'm a wine guy. I'm black, black wine guy. Like that was literally like a spoof. Like it was like, it was a spoof on some of the crazy names for almost well, I did it for nine months. I never showed. All it was was bottle shots. And that, that was what was so funny. I was like, it's just pictures of people standing with bottles, right? And and I was like, and those aren't even like great bottles. Some of them were like supermarket wine bottles. You know what I mean? Like, and I would see all the likes. So it was just kind of being funny, right? At first, <laughs> I shut it down for like six or seven months. Because I wasn't doing that. I was like, what am I doing, man? I'm wasting all this time on social media. And, but then when I came back, like I was, I was visiting my relatives down in Florida. We were down there for Thanksgiving. They're like, what, what happened with black wine guy? It was, eh, you know, so like that, I just put up a post and everybody's like, oh my God, where have you been? Thought you were dead. So I was like, oh, there's some interest here in this. So then what happened is I was like, okay, by sharing myself, right? So I grew up in Jersey and people, Jersey is notorious for having attitude. Like we do, we have an attitude in New Jersey. I was like. You know, also from New Jersey is Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, and guys like us. Like, I grew up cursing, you know? I wasn't supposed to, but, like, I'd go I, – I didn't curse at home when I was little, but when I was at school, I was like, rap, 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 rap. I mean, I curse, right? So I was like, listen, and this is how I used to talk about wine. And and so I would – I started doing these reviews, and I would start with, like, lyrics from a song. The lyrics could be obscure, and, so like, someone asked me in a, when I was interviewed – couple of years ago for a print article. Like, how do you pick the word? And it could be one word on the label, right? Sometimes everything lines up. Like, like I'm like, they must have wrote, they must have named this wine after a song. But sometimes I'll just look at something like, like I have a bottle in my hand right now and it says, friendship is our foundation, right? So I would might go 
just for that, I might be like, I'm going to use Friends by Houdini as the lyrics for describing this bottle. And then I go into my, my reviews where like, like I did one the other day, I'll say utterly fucking ridiculous amounts of juicy blue fruit, right? Because that's what I would say. If I'm drinking with friends, that's what I would say. I wouldn't, you know, you know, I wouldn't say. You weren't filtering it. You know, I did, when I first, I did a few rules, I was like, I was doing the whole wine speed thing, like copious amounts of unctuous. <laughs> <laughs> we all know, we all know. But, and I love those words. I love big words. But then I was just like, this wine, like a, a, a Syrah might be like, I'm like, it's like a tar streaked blueberry pop tart, right? Everybody's had a pop tart. Well, not everybody, but you know. Yes, but no, you yeah, you get it, you get it, and it's much more accessible to say that than unctuous. And... Yeah, uh, or like instead of voluptuous, like ass so fat you could see it from the front, which is a most deaf lyric, right? <laughs> Fantastic. And so people, and so that, and I think it was refreshing because I think people want to talk about wine, like like like. Listen, I I tell people I'm not the biggest blind taster. One. People have been blind tasting forever, right? The Judgment of Paris was a blind tasting. So this phenomenon of blind tastings that was thrust on by like the Psalm series, which did a lot for wine. But I think it, it makes people think that that's something new. And like my, my list, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, it just isn't. Definitely. Definitely. So I, I, I one of my thing is like, because of my age, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm between the baby boomers and and everyone else. Is understanding, but also like what I try and do. I have a lot of respect because I think people don't realize like it's atrocious that Kevin Zraeli, who is like the godfather of wine education in America, has like only eight thousand followers on social media, and then uh, you know an attractive young woman with her WSCT one has like fifty thousand followers. Yeah, yeah, it's it's disconcerting to say the least. And I and I'm I love marketing and I get it. I've had a social media marketing company and I get it. It's fun, it's exciting, but also the the issue is it can get away. People go down these rabbit holes, and a lot of stuff these people are saying they're just stealing passages from books and stuff they said, and they're re-saying it, and they're not adding their own spin to it besides their cuteness. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love social media, but suddenly everybody's an expert on everything because there's no way of checking their credentials. So it's interesting. It's an interesting time. It is. Like I said, everybody's an instant expert. And what I what drew me to wine was like, I could never know it all. Yeah, that's my favorite thing. No one can ever know it all because it changes every year. You never know what's going to happen next. Yeah, that was Mary Ewing Mulligan, master of wine. I think first North American woman to get a master wine, author of Wine for Dummies on the podcast. And she just said what you said. She said, I can't claim to know everything about wine because even if I know a certain wine, it's different than the next vintage. So how can you know it all? Exactly. And that's that's the fun. That's the geekiness. That's the total magic, seductive um, addiction of wine because it's always changing. It never gets boring. Well, so listen, I've, I've heard rumors that you've got a really cool idea for a more inclusive rating system, kind of like not using, you know, linear and unctuous uh, to describe wines. You came up with a rating system that was fist bumps. I love this. Describe this to me. Tell me, tell me sort of the ethos behind this idea, because I really hope you pull this off. Basically, it goes back to the wine and music connection. One of the most influential uh, magazines and in, in hip hop definitely was the Source magazine in the nineties. Yep. And early aughts. And interesting enough, I had friends who wrote for the Source. So the Source would rate 
albums with, with a mic system. So like five mics would be like, you know, it was like five mics, go buy this dope shit today, right? Like it was like five mics. I remember that. You're right. I've forgotten all about that. You're completely right. Yeah. So so I was like, all right, the fist bump, which has been around forever, but was was brought mainstream by President Barack Obama and him and Michelle doing it. So everybody knows the fist bump. And I was like, well, what if I did like five fist bumps? A fist bump system, you know, like one fist bump, you know. So that that's really it was it was it was it was it was an homage to the, the music. It was like, oh okay, so you can relate to the source. You know, it relates to the Source magazine, and it's very simple. Now, I will say this, though. There are people who, who denigrate, like, Parker and the, the point system. But here in the United States, we grew up taking tests, and we understand points, so I understand why they did that. You know what I mean? People like medals and stickers on their wine labels. If you're in a grocery store confronted by 3,000 bottles of wine, and you don't know anything, you're going to look for the one that has a gold medal sticker on it. Right. Right. That's the thing. Like, people are like, I'm like, okay. They won gold at the Central California Valley Wine Festival. And that's what I tell people. Like, even even if people follow me, like my recommendations, like, I find it interesting. I'm like, I tell people all the time, you don't have to like what I like. You know, and I'm just sharing these wines because I felt moved. I really like, like, right now, I only write reviews when I feel moved because I don't get paid for it. So, like... So, and even when I wrote them before, I was like, I was like, I felt moved. Like I felt moved by the wine, right? That being said, you don't have to like what I like. You shouldn't, because this is the best thing I heard recently. I had another master of wine on my podcast. She's like, I can't be in your mouth. Like your, your body chemistry is different. Your saliva is different in your mouth. You know, this is different. I don't know what you ate that day. Like it's all different, right? So it's so subjective. And it's really personal. Tasting something is very personal. You know, I, I work with, you know, I teach, I'm a professor of wine and culture and I teach students who are in their early twenties. And it's really, it's such a personal thing, especially if you haven't got an experienced palate and you can't talk about, you know, oh, white truffles and stuff like that. It's it's very interesting to talk about what something tastes and you know why you should like it or why you shouldn't. Either you do or you don't. It's personal. That's it. Exactly. Well, I'm going to be watching your Instagram and your podcast, and I want to see fist bumps after you're talking about wine, because I think that makes it so much more accessible to such a wider audience. It's so non-threatening. Everybody knows what a fist bump is, as you said. Thanks, President Obama. But I, I want to see that happen. I think you could make this a thing. You're on to something. I like the fist bump rate. You could even get stickers <laughs> to go on the wine ball. Oh, no, man. Listen, this is uh, why I love uh, talking with people, because ideas come, you know? And it's, uh... Exactly. Exactly. Well, look, before I let you get away, I have to ask you my very famous final question because we're on the Italian wine podcast. What's your favorite Italian wine? And I have to know what music you'd pair it with. Man, so... After your comments on tar, I have a guess. Uh, uh, here's, what I, here's what I can tell you. I will tell you that that is, I don't know, I don't drink enough Italian wine. So matter of fact, I'm in the midst of, a, of doing an Italian wine study with some friends of mine who, who are really knowledgeable in Italian wine. They own several restaurants here at the Jersey Shore. A lot of, lot of wines, a lot of wines from Italy. They're the only place in America that gets them. Um, you know, they go over and they have great relationships. So we're doing this thing called Italian Wine 101 because I want to learn more. What I'll tell you, I'll share, I will share, I will share three bottles I had recently and like last year that I thought were incredible. Uh, I had a 2019 Bartolo Mascarello Dolcetto de Alba. Oh my God. And Dolcetto, very underrated. I'm glad you like it. Exactly. I mean, now this is like a forty to forty-five dollar bottle retail Dolcetto. That's very sad. I'm not telling you what it costs here. 
No, I know what it costs there, but like, you know, but I will tell you, like, I was like, I, I, I love Dolcetto. It's so underrated. It's easy drinking, but this was, this had some sophistication and was just delicious. It was brought by a guest on the podcast who, who imports, who's a, who, who uh, loves Italian wines, imports a lot of Italian wines. And that was his thing. He's like, Dolcetto gets no love. And I was like, bro, you're right. It doesn't. And then this is where social media does work. Sometimes someone had posted this, um, a bottle of Barbera, and it was it was in my wheelhouse because I like Rhone wine, so I'm not afraid of 15% alcohol. So this was like a 15.5% alcohol Barbera. So it was a 2012 Filippo Galino Barbera d'Alba Superiore. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It was silky smooth black. It was just made my top 30 wines of the year last year. Just mm. So, yeah, so I... I love Barbera and Dolcetto. They're great everyday wines. You could pick them up in the States for like 20 bucks or less. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, no, I, Barbera is one of my favorites and Alba's great. Yeah, well, those could be a little too tar. That's the problem. Like they get, they're like tar, rose petals and tar. <laughs> well, if you are a tar guy, I, we've got to move you on to Barolo and to Gattinara and to Valtellina Superiore. Those are my three recommendations for you if you're a tar guy. Okay, and then and then this one, and then I, I I'll try and think of a music pairing for this one. But this was just outstanding. I was over at a friend's house, and we were drinking wine. We've had a shit ton of good wine, and and his wife was like, "We need one more bottle," which we really didn't. <laughs> but that last bottle was a 2010 Tignello, and that was that was Theodrate. It was 2021. Yeah, that was 11 years in. It was in his pocket. It was amazing. And uh, it was beautiful. Oh, wow. Iconic wine, Tignanello. Iconic. Yeah. I mean, it's iconic. And uh, what would I what, what what would I have paired that with? I would pair that with... I'll tell you what I'd pair. I'd pair and, 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 and pairings have to do with... It's the totality of things. Who I was drinking it with, you know? And because my, the, my friend who, I, who shared this bottle with, with me and my wife... He he's a musician, kind of like has a ska band. In addition to owning a retail shop, what like what's the commonality of us? Where we intersect with that Tignello? I would say Ma and Pa by Fishbone. Hey Ma and Pa, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Oh wow, interesting. Oh, well, I got to tell you, I, I, one of my songs, same sort of thing, back in high school in the or in the early '80s when I was a real jazz head in Cleveland was Wine Light by Grover Washington. And I have been looking. I didn't drink wine then. Nobody drank wine in Ohio. Uh, I got into wine when I was 20. But I have been looking for the wine to pair with that for my whole adult life. And when I find it, I will let you know. Well, you're so funny. I, I want to hear that. I want to hear that pairing. And when you said you're from Ohio, I'm like, okay, so when we drink wine, it's getting paired with Back to Ohio by the Pretenders. Like, that's where my mind works. So it just goes random. Oh, yes. Awesome. That is awesome. Okay. Well, we, we can't top that. We're going to have to stop here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciated talking with you. Cynthia, thank you for uh, having me. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk with you. And uh, when I'm headed over to Italy, I will let you know so we can get together. You are more than welcome. Thank you for listening, and remember to tune in next Wednesday when I'll be chatting with another fascinating guest. Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with a daily show. Tune in every day and discover all our different shows. You can find us at italianwinepodcast.com, SoundCloud, Spotify, Himalaya, or wherever you get your pods.
guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.